was the first to say that about social media or, or internet culture. Um, very influential, especially in the early days, um, early 2000s, MIT actually named him one of the top 10, I think he's like number six most um, influential people in the world. Um, and he, because he writes about technology and how it impacts the future, and a lot of people in that sector really listen to him. And his new book begins with this crazy story. Rushkoff was invited to speak at this conference for a bunch of investment bankers and like hedge fund manager types. And it was not his favorite audience, but it is at this really posh resort, and they were giving him an honorarium that was equal to almost half his yearly salary, so he took the gig and wrote, the, wrote a presentation. They flew him out first class and put him up in this massive suite, but then when he showed up to give his talk to this convention, they ushered him into this room he thought was a green room, like backstage at the event. But what happened next was um, what hooked me and made me start reading this book last week. Let me read a section. He says, they left me to drink coffee and prepare in what I figured was serving as my green room. But instead of me being wired with a microphone or taken to a stage, my audience was brought into me. They sat around the table and introduced themselves, five super wealthy guys, yes, all men, he writes, from the upper echelon of the tech investing and hedge fund world. At least two of them were billionaires. And after a bit of small talk, I realized they had no interest in the talk I had prepared for them about the future of technology. They had come to ask questions. And so they just sat there and started asking, I guess this is what you do. If you're a billionaire, like we go to conferences, they have, I don't know, the conference comes to them or something, I don't know how it works. They, they, they spend like a half a million dollars bringing in, you know, really smart people to, to just ask them, ask them questions. And they don't wanna share that information with a large group, they want that information for themselves. And they started off with like investor type questions, like is Bitcoin safe? Um, uh, is uh, quantum computing is this, is this really gonna happen? Um, should they invest in VR or augmented reality? Um, but he said it was almost like in their questions, they were testing him. They, not like testing to see about his knowledge, they were testing his morality and ethics. Like if he had scruples um, or, or how squeamish he was. That's what he said. And then slowly they began to steer the conversation to the, to the topic that he realized was what they really brought him there to talk about. They started questions like, what is um, the bigger risk, climate change or biological warfare? And then they said, if, it's, if climate change ends up as like the worst case scenario, um, what's, where is it safer to hunker down, Alaska or New Zealand? <laughs> or like how long, if we hunker down, how long we, should we be able to survive on our own without outside help? And, and should, you know, if we have a, a shelter of some kind, should it have its own oxygen supply, right? Um, this one billionaire just kind of laid his cards on the table. He said he was in the final stages of completing his own massive private underground doomsday shelter, this bunker system, but he was dogged by this one nagging question or problem that he could not solve in this, his, all his planning. And it was this, um, and this is a quote from him. How do I maintain authority over my security force after the event. And he realized the event was these billionaires, it was their name for like this imaginary cataclysmic event in the future that would be effectively the end of society in its current form. And it could be, I mean, they asked questions about environmental collapse, 
social unrest, nuclear explosion, an unstoppable virus, a solar storm, like a cyber attack that just takes down every system, including the, the financial system. And they, for the next hour, they kept him at this, this table, and they just talked about that one question, that last question. Like, they knew that it, if they were going to bunker up when, you know, the zombie apocalypse happens, that they would need their own, like, armed guards to keep them safe, to protect their compounds from the mobs of desperate people. And they already had, like, armories full of military-grade equipment, tons of weapons and ammo. This one guy talked about he had 12 Navy SEALs, like, on retainer. And if he gave them the bat signal, they were supposed to come to his little, little bunker thing. Um, but there was just this one question that they were completely unable to solve. How could they retain the loyalty of their little private army if their money was suddenly worthless, right? What's to stop them from just, you know, tying up a billionaire and, like, taking over for themselves, choose their own leader? And they had some ideas that they wanted to run past him. So, like, one was, what if we put combination locks on the food supplies that only we know the combination to? I'm sorry, this makes me laugh. It's so stupid. Um, <laughs> this, is, this is the worst one. What if we made our soldiers wear disciplinary collars? Like a shock collar or one that would somehow like cut them or something. I don't know. Or maybe they, we should just bypass humans altogether. We'll just develop a robot army, some kind of unmanned security thing for their, for their deal. This is, this is what billionaires are doing these days. They're building bunkers. Um, to protect them in the case of the event. This is, this is what they're doing. But they have this problem. How are they going to retain the loyalty of their little army if their money ends up being worthless? All of a sudden, I don't know if you've seen this, all of a sudden Mark Zuckerberg's like fascination with MMA fighting. Have you seen him doing this? All of a sudden I'm like, oh, this makes sense now. Like... If he thinks that he's tough enough, all these guys will just follow him out of respect, I guess. I don't know. But I was thinking about this. I'm like, I've seen this before. This is literally John Favreau's character in the TV show Friends. This is exactly what he did. Remember in his octagon thing? I should have shown you the one where he's in like the full body cast. Like that's how, that's how this works out. So Ruskoff, he, he sat with them. And he's a weird dude. Like he's not a Christian, but he's kind of an upside down thinker. And he tried to tell them, you guys are wasting your money. You're investing in exactly the wrong things. He's like, private armies, bunkers, and compounds, these are too fragile to protect you if there is the event, a full-scale societal collapse. Those things are, are those insulated things, they're, they're like monocultures. All it takes is one system to fail, and then the whole thing falls down, right? It's like, it, it's very tenuous. And he said, if the event actually happens, the worst place to be is isolated in, in a bunker. The only way to survive a, a failing society is through community and friendship and cooperation. Like a doomsday plan based on a bunker. It's and, and just waiting on everybody else to die so, and you can escape that. It's never going to work. It's too fragile. You'll forget about one thing. Like you'll show up there and somebody will like, okay, who brought the air filters? Dead silence. And you're like... Uh-oh, <laughs> I guess, guess we're going to die now. The, the whole thing comes crashing down if one little thing fails. And then he started telling me, you know, like I've been around since the beginning 
of the digital age, I mean, writing about this, the whole promise of technology has always been that it can somehow help us collaborate and work together to try to solve these kinds of problems. He's like, you're the people with money and the resources and the power and the influence to actually um, see that this doesn't happen. Like to, not just to survive the event, prevent the event from ever happening. But he said it was like they were speaking a foreign language. Like every time he would tread into that, they would go, yeah, but Elon, Elon says that we can terraform Mars and we could move to Mars. Like this is their thinking. Peter Thiel, like have you heard of this guy? He, he's trying to reverse aging, which I'm like, okay. But like, doesn't your brokenness continue if you just the older you get? And another guy, um, the Google guy, Ray Kurzweil, he's trying to upload his consciousness to a supercomputer. That's the goal of his life. Like, I have seen that movie so many times. It's a great, <laughs> it is a great movie, but it is always a horror movie, right? <laughs> and he, he said literally he felt like he was talking to 12-year-old boys that had just, like, found conspiracy theories for the first time, and they were staying up all night going, oh, what if this happens, you know? Except they're billionaires, and they're putting 20 to 30% of their wealth into these kind of things, many of them. These elaborate apocalyptic survival strategies. All right, so here's why I'm sharing this with you. I think this can actually give us some insight into the heart of what Jesus was up to in his own life as he engaged with the people around him. I think he had exactly this kind of tendency in us, in mind, in his own life and teachings. And we don't forget, he was living in a society um, that was facing its own cataclysm, the, the kind of destruction of the Jewish state by the Roman Empire. It was just, just a few decades in front of him. And he insisted that the inevitable failure of the kingdoms of the world, you know they all fail, right? America will fail eventually. They all fail. But he said this shouldn't be greeted with, as bad news because God is always working in and through the cataclysms to birth a new kind of a kingdom. And today we're beginning a new um, sermon series that we're calling quirks. And this is why. Quir quirks is, it's like a word that I often hear used about Redemption Church. People call us quirky. And I guess that's probably true. I try not to be offended. So now I'm just like, yeah, let's be quirky. Like, we'll just, we'll just own this. And I think there's a good reason for that. And that's what I want to talk about for, for these weeks. I think that we are quirky. And the reason is I think we're, we're um, part of um, a movement of the spirit in the world today. That there's kind of a new kind of church popping up all over the place. And it doesn't fit in, in the old categories of like evangelicalism or mainline Protestantism or Roman Catholicism, liberal Christianity, conservative Christianity, fundamentalism. It doesn't describe what we're about. And, and that's because I think we're part of something new the Spirit is doing in the world with the church right now. And I, I'm not saying like that I have some like special knowledge from God, you know, I didn't get like hit in the head or struck by lightning or anything. I just been doing this for 33 years now. And when I step back and try to look at the scope of the, those three decades, this is really what I see. I think God is at work in the world and that God is just grabbing these little churches like ours and, and breathing life into them. And at the same time, kind of in a sense, distancing God's self from like institutions 
and denominations and power brokers with tons of money and influence who have really dominated Christianity in the West for centuries. And, and God seems to be sort of just pulling from all over and establishing this new center of Christianity that's um, not around like institutions and, and boundary markers and, and that kind of stuff, but it's really is about different kinds of things. And in fact, God is asking people to transgress those denominational, doctrinal, historical, institutional boundaries a little bit and rope up with kind of ragamuffin churches like this. And, and it's, it, the new center is forming around Jesus and the Gospels and, and the rich history of the Christian tradition, especially some of the contemplative practices just breathing life into us. And, and an appreciation for the story of God, like the narrative sweep of history and how this can, can orient us in the world. And, and really, I think the center God is drawing people to really is a new orientation in a very confusing time. A, a new orientation about life and the world and what it means to be human. And, and if you're at this new center, which I think we are, you're quirky. You just are. The old categories don't fit. Like people think they have you nailed down and then you say something and they're like, that doesn't fit with like where I usually put things. This isn't a bad thing. It's just we've been drawn to like a different place, a, a new center. And I think this is where Redemption Church lives. We're at the center of a new movement of the spirit. There's no like charismatic leader. Um, there's no institution at the center. There's no name for it. No marketing plan. It's not confined to a denomination. Um, it's just a bunch of disparate people called from all different centers of the church all over the place who are being drawn together around, around gospel. And, um, and it's quirky. It's quirky. And so for the next six weeks, we're going to kind of explore the quirks of redemption, just a few of them, a handful of them. But make redemption, redemption. And today we're going to start with that central one, the thing that I think is really drawing us together, sort of the essence of Christianity, which is often described by the word gospel. Gospel is a huge word. And for, for centuries in Western Christianity, um, it has be, become more and more fixated on life in this world as a kind of cataclysm, or at least on the verge of one. And the gospel has often been portrayed as a means of escape, like a bunker, a survival bunker. Um, life in the world is going to like hell in a handbasket, and each sinful person has been disqualified from the with God life, and the gospel was often portrayed as an escape from the broken situation, how to go to heaven when you know, this place finally turns to dust. The problem with this is Jesus never really talked about this. And we talked about these kind of things. He didn't talk like that about escape. The gospel for Jesus was not a response to the conspiracy theories of the day or a way to escape the world's brokenness and to get out of here and up there where God is. Jesus seemed to believe that the gospel itself was a conspiracy, was a people conspiring, God conspiring with humanity. It was um, what Dallas Willard, this great theologian, called a divine conspiracy. That's the gospel. It's a divine conspiracy. Um, it's not how to get 
into heaven when you die. That is not the gospel. It's not basic entrance requirements for getting to heaven, or it's not a gospel of sin management. The gospel is about how God is making all things new in and through Christ. Not just escaping the world, but, but redeeming it, remaking it through Christ and, and the body of Christ, the church, the people of God. I mean, Jesus, I love this line. I repeat it in my head all the time, this quote from Christ. See, I am making all things new. That's the good news. The, the word in Greek is this word, euangelion, which in their time was not a religious word. Gospel was um, good news from the battlefront. That's where the word comes from. It's, it's a runner carrying a message back to the town from the front lines that says, we won. The battle has been won, right? That's euangelion. So it's good news from, from the, the middle of the mess, right? From the front lines of, of our struggle here in the world. That's Christ's typical way of talking about it. It was, it was a gospel. It was good news from, from the front lines where you live. And his way of saying it is it's a gospel of the kingdom of God. That's the central line. He said it over and over and over. It's a little bit odd for us because we don't have a king, Right? And in fact, I've been thinking about this some with the, like, the King Charles, new, new King stuff. Just look at that. And I'm like, I, I don't get it. I really don't get it. But I, we, I have, like, my king is Burger King. That's my king. Like, or, or like the king of pop is Michael Jackson. Like, I have those kind of kings. Or the sausage king of Chicago. Anybody know the sausage king? Anybody know who it is? Anyone know from Ferris Bueller? Abe Froman. It's Abe, Abe Froman, the sausage king. I, have a, I had a weird childhood. Um, these, that's what we think of when we say king. It's like, you're the best at this or that. But the kingdom in scripture, in the kingdom of God, is it's a place where a king rules. That's a kingdom. Where, what the king wants to happen is what actually happens. That's a kingdom. It's the, the range of the king's effective will. So where the king says what happens, that's his kingdom. Where the king doesn't, that's not his, not his kingdom. And the gospel that Jesus preached was good news that the kingdom of God, the reign and rule of God, was breaking into the world through Christ and through his disciples in this new and powerful way. It was a conspiracy that was meant to extend deep down into the front lines of our lives and into all of the world. This divine conspiracy through which God is making all things new. The kingdom of earth, not like out there somewhere and us escaping to it, but it is invading the world. And if you read the New Testament, it is unbelievable how many times um, Jesus talked about the gospel of the kingdom of God. It's his major fixation. It's really his central theme of, of all of his messages. So, for instance, Mark's gospel was written first. And in Mark, there's no birth narrative. And so the very first mention of Christ in the gospel of Mark says this, Mark chapter 1, starting 14. It says, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. That's where he started. My message, he said, right up front, is that it's good news that the kingdom of God is here. And if you'll turn around, you can come be part of it. It's like 99% of his ministry. Matthew 4, it says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. People would ask, what's, what's this kingdom going to be like? And Jesus would say, Matthew 19, when the Son of Man sits on his throne, like a king, 
Those who are first will be last, and those who are last will be first. That's Matthew 19. Those who usually have a hard time in life or getting taken advantage of, they don't, get, they don't have a like, secret password to get into the bunker, they will do okay here. Uh, Matthew 5 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is what? The kingdom of God, right? Blessed are those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted for righteousness' sake. That's who can be part of this new kingdom of God. Matthew 7, they, they were asking me, you know, like, the, the religious leaders, they had a very hard time. Power brokers, people who had institutions that, that made them influential, they had a hard time with this. And they could talk a good game, but Jesus seemed to think you can't power your way into this. You can't, like, fool God with your influence. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's Matthew 7. In fact, Jesus said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is Matthew. Very often, kingdom of heaven is just a workaround because they didn't write God, so they said heaven. But it's the same, same exact concept. But then he would warn them, like, you also can't, like, earn your spot in this. In fact, he says, it is your father's goodwill to give you the kingdom. And, and so he kind of expounded what is the righteousness then that you're giving us? What, what, what is it like? And he, he just, he explained it this way. He said, those who feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, show hospitality to the stranger, clothe the naked, care for the sick, visit the prison, prisoner. God will say to them, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. That's Matthew 25. And, and the wealthy, whose money buys them everything, cannot buy their way into this kingdom of God. He said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. That's Luke 18. There, it's one of the weird things about the, the gospel of the kingdom that's at the center here, is that you get the sense that actually God is not weak and wimpy and in need of protection in the world. God is quite powerful and everywhere and always, but God is looking for people with whom God can share God's power. But power makes tremendous demands on our character. And so God creates a world so there's room for us to like mess things up, ignore God, see how badly that fails and learn our lesson and hopefully fail again, but maybe fail better, hoping over time we can be transformed into people of character and virtue with whom God can share God's power of the kingdom, ruling and reigning. But God can't trust people like, like the billionaires at the table with David Ruskopf. Like, it was funny, he, he, said, he describes on the flight home from this thing, he was just still reeling, like, I can't believe that happened to me. And, and he's, he sits down and, and writes this article, I think it was on the Gar, um, Guardian, went viral, like immediately, as soon as he posted it. And then he started just getting inundated with these phone calls. And there were two people calling him, two kinds of people. One was people who wanted to pay him to get access to the billionaires so that they could sell them something, which is so perfect. And, but the second was a bunch of billionaires calling him to see if he would come to their place and consult on their plan for the zombie apocalypse, right? And so instead, he spent the next three years kind of researching and writing this book that I'm reading. It's just fascinating to me. But um, one of the things he, he notes in this, in his research, is that um, being that rich and powerful 
almost has a dehumanizing effect on people. He cites, cites all these studies that show that, that the more power someone has, the less um, motor resonance they have. Um, it's how we do our mirroring of other people. Like the, they lose their ability to perceive another person, like what's going on with them through their body language and their face, and then to match that energy. They just, they just kind of, they, they in effect lose their ability to experience empathy. And he cites these studies that show their, their behaviors of these like uber wealthy guys, they actually mimic people who have brain damage like to their prefrontal cortex. Um, being a billionaire like, is like having brain damage. It inhibits just basic abilities um, around social interactions. And if you watch like how they act, like, I mean watch, just pay attention to Elon Musk or, or Zuckerberg or Bezos sometimes. You're like, this is odd, this is just odd, it's freaky. It's like they lose their ability to perceive themselves as part of the social group. And it's not, it's not that they just watch too many episodes of you know, The Walking Dead or something. Their minds have been transformed by their wealth. And, and so socially, it, something, it, empathy doesn't guide their actions. And so anytime that Rushkoff would talk to them about love as, and community as the you know, survival strategy, the stewardship of power, all they could think of was like this self-concerned drive to escape. Like everybody else is going to be hosed. I am going to survive this somehow, right? And they just couldn't see that then the world they were creating, it makes the cataclysm almost inevitable. They're doing it, right? It's, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. And if only they could turn to the community, like, Mutuality, cooperation, in essence, love. That's what safeguards the future. But they're convinced their way will work if they could just solve this one tiny bug, which is how to control people when their money is worthless, right? And this just does not compute. It's so funny. I just see them up at night going, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? It's like, you can't do anything, man. Like, you need a friend really bad in a church. <laughs> and God just refuses to trust people like that with God's power. God has chosen to give... God's power to the weak and to the poor and to the ragamuffins of the world. This is central to the gospel. The kingdom of God is a gift, and you have to be humble to receive it. Luke chapter 18 says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a child will never enter it. Child, children had no rights in their culture. You have to humble yourself. You have to maybe be a tiny bit desperate to get in on this, because then you'll just chase after it. He says, um, the scripture Kristen read earlier, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all the stuff you're worried about, it'll, it'll come to you. It'll be added to you in time. And some would ask, okay, this is a Jewish thing, though, right? Like, where's this going to happen? Jerusalem? Do we have to fight a war for it? And Jesus said, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God, he said, is within you. But it's not you, it's y'all. It lives in, in the group. And the kingdom isn't flashy. It's about really small and insignificant things. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, he said, the smallest tiny seed, but it grows into this massive bush. That's Mark 4. The kingdom of God is like a bit of yeast that gets worked into the dough and leavens the whole thing. That's Matthew 13. The kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in the field and you go sell everything to buy that field because it's, it's 
invaluable. It's the pearl of great price. That's Matthew 13. And they would ask, you know, like, are you talking about what happens after we die? Like, here, is, is that what this is? The kingdom of heaven is like, it's like that afterlife situation. He's like, some of you who are standing here will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come in power. Mark chapter 9. And they're like, so then how do you know it, when it's happening? And he'd say, when all the crazy demons that possess your life are being cast out and you find yourself free, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And the Pharisees were like, we still don't get it. Like, this is a Jewish thing, right? Like, there was always their, their thing. Like, and he said, many will come from the east and the west. Those are, you know, eastern religions, Rome, like pagans. Many will come from the east and the west and take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God. That's Matthew 8. And he said, in fact, I want you all to have a say in what the kingdom even looks like. He said, I give you the keys to the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That's Matthew 16. He said, I want you to, you know, just pray for this thing and this power and that other stuff. He's like, this is how I want you to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when he sent his guys out to, to start practicing this new kind of mission of God, this kingdom lifestyle, he sent them out and said, this is what you tell people. The kingdom of God has come near. And then heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, he said, so freely give. That's Matthew 10. We could, you guys, we could go on like this for hours. And that's, that's a fraction of the verses. It's all over the gospel. If you actually read the gospels, you can't get a couple of pages without hearing about the kingdom of God. It was just his central proclamation. The kingdom of God, this is the gospel. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent, like change your direction. Get with this. This is where the life is. It's a conspiracy and you can get in on it. And this, this, was his, this was his central mission. God's vision for a world rightly ordered is God's kingdom. And Christ's mission was to teach about it, embody it, enact it in his actions, and then kind of inaugurate it and then just leave it to the body of Christ, the church, and empower that church with the spirit to keep the conspiracy going. And, and sort of in our tradition, the pinnacle of his life and ministry, and really kind of the center of history for us, was his, his cross and resurrection. And so one of his most characteristic calls in, in, the, in the Gospels was, if you want to be part of my kingdom, you have to take up your cross and follow me. This just means that you have to be willing to die for one another. This is how we love. We pour out our lives for one another. That's what it means to love. And, and this, this is a completely different logic than how most of the world operates. And so it's quirky. It makes us quirky and weird. And he said, you know, don't be surprised when the kingdoms of the world oppose you. He said, my, my kingdom is not of this world. We use of. It's actually the better translation is from. It's origin because it's talking about origin. 
It's not from this world. And so it's weird. It's, it's quirky. It's like our logic comes from somewhere else. And this sets up a, a conflict with our way of life and kind of the basic way of life of the world. And if your mind is captive to the world, man, you will um, you'll misconstrue the nature of the kingdom. And I really think this is part of what has happened in the West, mostly as, as capitalism kind of becomes our de facto religion. It is colonized Christianity. And it's, it's very difficult for us to think in kingdom terms. And, you know, billionaire doomsday preppers are not helping. <laughs> um, and they won't be able to tell they've missed it. The problem really is that so many of the leaders of churches and institutions and denominations and stuff, it's after centuries of protecting their territory, man, it's, it's, it doesn't, they can't even see the kingdom. It's brutal. Um, and the truth is, this should, we shouldn't be like, yeah, and we can see it. I mean, this should be teaching us, oh, wow, man, I miss it. Constantly, I miss it. But the good news is, um, you know, in, in Jesus' way of telling it, is that God is not after your perfection, man. God is looking for people like the prodigal son. That's who gets in on it. Not the people who never, like, sowed their wild oats or, I mean, continually, you know, go to the slop of the pigs. He's like, he wants people who have faced their own brokenness and come to their senses, able to tell the truth about it and stop pretending. And then they, um, the story is so important, they go on this journey back to find the loving father. And then he says, you know, the posture of the father is he's scanning the horizon, waiting. This is the God, the kingdom. Not like punishing the broken, but just going, you'll, you'll be back. You know where home is. Like, play in the pig slop all you want. Eventually, you'll be home. And you know what? I'll, I'll be watching for you. I will run to meet you. That's the kingdom. This, this is why it's gospel. This is why it's good news. Because it's for the ragamuffins. And if it wasn't, I could never be a pastor. I couldn't even be a Christian. It's for the broken people. You just have to be willing to admit it. And, and try to come home one foot in front of the other. And, and God has given God's kingdom to the ragamuffins. Only those who come to grips with their own brokenness can be trusted with God's power. And there's power. There's so much power in this story and in the spirit. This power in God's kingdom, it, it inhabits weakness, not strength. It's not about escaping and getting out of here. It, it's not about sin management or basic instructions for how to get into heaven when we die. It's the good news that God is in Christ, in the spirit now, making all things new. It's a conspiracy of love. And anyone who's willing to take up their cross and follow Jesus can be part of this divine conspiracy. And, and at, at a redemption church, this is the gospel that we just cherish and revel in. The kingdom of God is here. It's within y'all, us all. And 
Jesus said, like, this is how, this is how I want you to focus. I want you, I want you to pray like this. this. This became maybe one of the most well-known sayings of Christ. Um, when you pray, pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Participate in this, and, you, and you'll be subjects of this king who's remaking the world. This is it's a quirky thing, I know. But this is the heart of the gospel. And this one thing, this idea that the gospel is not just sin management, it's about everything, all of life. God is making all things new through Christ. This is the, the center of this new thing it feels like God is doing in the world that redemption is, is a part of. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to see your kingdom come on earth, your will be done in the little places where we can have say, where we have our presence and your presence through us. We want you to reign and rule in our lives. And we just confess we are all prodigal sons. We all have our thing, our brokenness. I'm just so grateful that when you look at us, you just love us. You don't hold my sins against me, God, and I'm so grateful. And so best we can, as a congregation, God, we want to take up our cross and follow after you. Teach us to lay our lives down for each other and for the life of the world, especially for the least of these. Help us to be brave to share when we're struggling, to let other Christians in on our brokenness and to say, this is me, this is where I struggle. And teach us how to see your kingdom at work already in the world. We're so grateful for Christ and these, these gospels that tell us what it means to be part of your kingdom. Amen. I invite you to